1: Hi, I'm Chelsea Clinton, and this season on In Fact, we're celebrating Women's History Month. I'll be talking with trailblazing women across a variety of industries about their personal journeys, the progress women have made, and how far we still have to go. Today we're looking at the restaurant industry with award-winning chef Mashama Bailey. Odds are, when most people picture a chef at a high-end, internationally recognized restaurant, they envision a man a white man. As you'll hear from my guest, the truth is only 25% of professional chefs are women and only 10% of professional chefs are black. So the percentage of professional chefs who are black women, like our trailblazer today, Chef Bailey, it's very small. Yet traditionally, women were the cooks in their families. In fact, it's still more often than not true today. But in the US in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a rise of upscale restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs. These were almost always white men and they were treated as food visionaries far removed from home cooking. There were, of course, some women chefs preparing phenomenal food at restaurants across the country and they were recognized as such. But they didn't fit the image and they rarely got the same level of media attention that men did. As recently as 2013, less than a decade ago, Time magazine ran a cover story on the quote gods of food and included no female chefs. Sad, certainly inaccurate, and yet not surprising. But of course, there have always been women chefs who defied the norms. Julia Child is often considered the first celebrity chef, though she made shows for home cooks. Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse in 1971 and became one of the pioneers of the farm-to-table movement. And Edna Lewis, the legendary African-American chef and cookbook author, brought rich and delicious Southern cooking to the whole country and Ms. Lewis inspired a new generation of chefs, including my guest, Mashama Bailey. Mashama is the award-winning executive chef and co-founder of The Gray Restaurant in Savannah, Georgia, its all-day counterpart, The Gray Market, and two new restaurants opening in Austin, Texas. She trained in New York and France and spent many years cooking at restaurants in New York, including at Prune, Gabrielle Hamilton's beloved bistro in the East Village. She was the first African-American chef to be featured on an episode of Chef's Table on Netflix. She leads off season six, in case you're wondering. And she and her business partner, John O. Morisano, are the co-authors of the memoir with recipes, Black, White, and the Gray, the story of an unexpected friendship and a beloved restaurant.
5: Mashama, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's a complete pleasure to be here. We don't celebrate each other enough, I don't think. I thought we could start with what drew you to becoming a chef? I started cooking when I was 26. So I think most women may know who they are when they're 26, but I still didn't. And I had to kind of back out of a lot of things that I thought were normal, especially for women in the world and also women in the food industry.
1: What was that moment like at 26? How did you decide that you wanted to become a chef?
5: I've always been a quiet person, and I'm the oldest of three. I really helped my parents raise my brother and sister, quite frankly. And so I was the oldest, and I was five years older than my brother, nine years older than my sister, so I took a lot on. And I tend to follow in a lot of ways. So my parents were social workers, and I thought that was something that I wanted to do. And so I had graduated school with a psychology degree, was working in a homeless shelter for families, and I was horrible at it. I was insecure and ill prepared, and I just was afraid. I think I was afraid to actually give a lot of myself in a situation that needed a lot from me because I didn't know who I was. So I was afraid to give. And so Right around the time when that was being exposed in my career was when we were doing a lot of holiday parties or just a lot of like work parties. So I would cook for the job and we would just have potlucks like once a week and everyone liked what I cooked. Your food always disappeared first. It always disappeared first. Yeah, They liked what I cooked and I think that's why I started getting into cooking ultimately.
1: And I was so struck reading your book When you went to culinary school and you were given an assignment to write about your inspiration and you wanted to write about your grandmother's cooking and you were told you couldn't write about your grandmother's, I took great offense at that because I was very close to my grandmother's and they very much remain with me, even though they're no longer with us. And you had to go searching for someone you wanted to write about. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and why you had to go searching and who you found?
5: My main experience with chefs were on television, really. So when it came to actually figuring out who a real life chef was, I wasn't very versed in eating in restaurants. I was versed in eating in my grandmother's kitchens. So I wanted to really focus on them because I thought that they were the best cooks that I knew. And to my chef instructor's point, it made sense that he had me go out and explore just the vastness of where chefs come from and what restaurants they cook in. And I ended up finding an old, I think it was an ebony article <laughs> and like that was done in like early 90s. And it was talking about Miss Edna Lewis. And I just started digging about her and looking at her history and looking at the cookbooks she had written and really learning about who she was and how she got to become a chef in the United States and also the legacy that she created for herself. And you, I think, never
1: thought you would write a book, and yet you have written a book with your partner, John, Black, White, and the Gray. It's not a cookbook per se, but there are recipes at the end of every chapter. And I wonder if you could talk about the experience of working with John to build the restaurant.
5: I was working at Prune under Gabrielle Hamilton. I was a sous chef in her restaurant. A place that I used to love to go. Oh, it's
1: so... It's Pre-pandemic when it was such an important part of our life here in New York City.
5: It's such a special restaurant and it's about as big as my hotel room that I'm in currently. But she really helped me grow as a chef and as a woman. And so I was there for about three years and we call him John O. His middle name is Oh gosh, it's Ool. <laughs> and so he likes it.
1: Right. There's no, like he has like Norwegian, like a Norwegian yeah, grandfather. His, I read
5: in the book, right? Mm-hmm. And he had like a
1: tattoo that he had Ta- to hide that was in honor of his Norwegian grandfather. I mean, there are all sorts of fascinating stuff that I learned in the book.
5: We're special. We're a special pair. So Jono reached out to her. He was looking for a chef and she brought my name up because. I think she felt like, and I think I felt like at the time that I had been there long enough. It was time for the next thing. It was time for the next thing. It was time to move on. And so she told me about the conversation. She was like, I don't know this man. He may be a wackadoo, but I just want to let you know that I had this meeting and I brought you up because I think you're ready. And I know that your mother's side of the family is from the South and this restaurant is in Savannah. This was right around the scandal of Paula Dean and oh. her exposure with how she worked with her kitchen. And I thought that this was like a person being an opportunist. And I just was like, I don't want anything to do with it. I thought he was originally from the South, so I immediately came very suspicious. And you worried you'd be exploited. And I thought I would be exploited. So I was just like, no. You know, and there was an emphasis on being a woman and being a minority woman, being a black woman. And I was like, absolutely not. And then I learned he was from Staten Island. So he was a New Yorker. And I was like, okay maybe I should at least take the meeting. And I had two women who I was working with and they were just staring at me while I was talking to Gabrielle. And I could remember their faces. And as soon as she walked out the room, they were like, take the meeting. What are you doing? Take the meeting. And I was like, okay, I'll just take the meeting.
1: Meanwhile, it's sort of extraordinary though that now one of the best restaurants in the South, one of the best restaurants in our country that is in the South started because you had a shared New York City connection. (laughs) Right. It's just I just think we have to pause on that for a moment. We were like, oh, he's from Staten Island.
5: Totally. That makes total sense. Let's just move down to the south. What is it, say like carpetbagger. Let's just go down south and yeah. just do it. Yeah. So that's how we met. And then what happened? We had a 30 minute meeting that turned into a four hour meeting. He showed me the blueprints of the space. I thought that there was no way in the world that I could do that. Why did you think that? Because it just was bigger than Prune? It's five times the size of Prune. It's in a bus station that was built in 1938. The layout was calling for 35 seats in the front of the building, which is now the diner bar, which is the size of Prune. Then the main dining room was 76 seats. Then there were two private dining areas. And there was outdoor seating. And I was just like, there's no way in the world I could do this. Which is unfortunately what women often say to ourselves. Yeah, I was like, there's no way in the world. But within those blueprints, as he was showing me in his office that first night we met, he pointed to the back area where the restrooms were and said that was where the colored waiting room was. And I was like, excuse me, wait, what? (laughs) And he goes, yeah, it's still standing. The building is exactly the way it was. The sign was still there. He didn't exactly say the sign was still there, but Chelsea, the sign was still there. It was very faded and you would almost have to look at it where the light hit it just right. But you could see the outline of the letters. Well, what a effing metaphor. Right. So that's what got me on that plane and got me down there. I was like, I got to see this. The building was completely empty. It was freezing. It was just like dust and debris everywhere. There were no windows. And I walked in and it was warm. It felt warm. It almost felt like it belonged to me. It felt like I was supposed to be there. And so I stood in that colored waiting room for a little bit. And I don't know who I was talking to, but I was talking to someone. And I was just like, I can do this. It All of a sudden wasn't as big and it wasn't as scary and it wasn't as challenging. So then we proceeded to really get to know each other. And up until then, we went out to eat all the time and we would taste food together and we would just talk about food, you know, talked about family. And I think we clung to each other because, you know, the reality of it is that neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing. And that was why we both jumped into the deep end of the pool. Do You
1: think that was an advantage? It was an advantage. You were maybe liberated by being able to imagine something new mm-hmm. and different and powerful together.
5: I lived in Savannah from the age of five to almost 11. So that was my viewpoint on the South. It was the candy lady and running around in school and making friends. I was mainly a New Yorker, so I was very naive when it came to just being in the South in general. I think if I knew how deep the water was, I probably wouldn't have done it. And I don't think he would have either. When you say how deep the water is, what do you mean? So moving to a new city and building a business is very hard. And when you don't have any resources, you don't really know anyone there who can actually help you build the business, it's even harder. And I think that's what we were up against. And that's what we're still up against, right? There wasn't anyone else in the city that was like us. So people were cautious about what we're going to bring, what we're going to serve, who we're going to feed. And we had no idea who that was going to be. We had no idea who the demographic of the restaurant was going to be, who was going to work at the restaurant for that matter. So I think that naivete also helped us get through some very challenging issues as far as like who our suppliers were going to be. Were we going to be able to work with Black farmers? Was I going to be able to hire Black cooks? Who was going to be in the front of house that was a representation of me and also Jono? And we still struggle with those types of demographics within the space.
1: We'll be right back. Stay with us. It is really always puzzling to me, which feels like maybe too tame of a word, that so often we do think of cooking and feeding as being women's work. And yet you're still fairly rare as a woman at the helm of her restaurant, the chef of her own kitchen. And yet in your book, you talk about how
5: you've seen a shift. And Lewis was the first Black head chef in the United States. And that was in 1949. But you didn't learn about her in culinary school. You had to to research her. her. You had to research
1: her, right? So that's also part of the challenge. That's part of the challenge. People should be learning about her in culinary school.
5: I think if I did not know about her, I probably wouldn't have thought that I could do the job that I'm doing today because that seed had been planted 20 years ago. So when you think about food and you think about African-Americans and food, especially African-American women, you think about domestic. My great-grandmothers were domestics. My great-great-grandmothers were domestics. And when I say domestics, I mean cooking in houses of affluent white people, right? So when I talked to my father about being a chef, he automatically pictured that for my future. And you were a private chef. And I was a private a chef. And yeah. that's when he really got sensitive about my career choices is when I became a private chef. So when you think about women in the kitchen, especially when you think about Black women in the kitchen, you don't think about them running the kitchen. You think about them being a member of the kitchen. So right now there's about 150,000 chefs in the United States, and there's only about 25% of them that are women. And there are about 10% that are African-American, just African-American So I can't imagine that there must be about half that, if less than that, who are Black women. So I think what we're seeing with social media, we're seeing the way that the conversation has been really surrounding food, American food, and figuring out what American food is. You're seeing a spotlight on the Black community, but I'm not quite sure if the stats have shifted, but ever so slightly, And this conversation is really important because I feel like that is part of my next role, part of my next step. Like I've had my head down, I've been working, I've been feeding that ego, and now it's time to shed that and help make room for the next generation of men and women, especially focusing on women who want to be able to do this as a career. And I think for us, it's very simple. We're the nurturers of our family. We have we have the babies and we raise the children. And so I think when it comes to that, we really need men to help support that part of how to build a family in order for us to really be successful in these careers that are so demanding.
1: Mishama, I am curious how you, then you do that in your own kitchen and your own restaurant. How do you ensure that you are recruiting and then retaining women, whether they're cooking on the line or they're standing at the front of the house?
5: We've been really focusing on that because the thing about restaurants is like you kind of are on all the time, especially when you're cooking. You're there very early and you're there very late. And it's almost like a badge of honor if you're the first person there and the last person to leave. And what we're starting to implement is that that's not really the badge of honor. The badge of honor is actually finding balance within your life, actually being able to come to the job, do the job and go home and have some balance and some separation and have your own life. And taking out that way of thinking is the beginning of how we really start to lead by example when it comes to building a healthy staff and a healthy model. And so we're not being frantic or we're keeping the stress level down for the cook, the average line cook that's coming in. When we first opened, we were like balls to the wall. Everybody was going for it. And if you were not in the front of the pack, you were left behind. And it wasn't by design. It just happened like that because that's the majority of the life that I lived when I was learning how to cook in restaurants. That's the model you knew. That's the model that I knew. And so I was leading by this example of if you're not there all the time, then you're not doing a good enough job. And it took years for me to actually look at that and see that's not how you run a successful business. You're never going to get around the fact that cooking is just hard and it requires you to be present. It's very hands on. But we are trying to figure out best ways to provide balance. And I think as far as being a leader in the African-American community in the South, I think me being out there more talking about things like this, talking about the need for us to pursue this career in a disciplined fashion than I think the more people will be interested in learning from what we have to offer.
1: And presumably all of what you just talked about in terms of how you help build and nurture a healthy community has helped you survive COVID-19. Because people had the resources to be people as well as also be chefs Mm -hmm. or bartenders or work at the front of the
5: house. Yeah. I had a friend in Atlanta during the book tour... We were talking about just the crisis of staffing now. And he said he didn't realize how many people were unhappy in this business. And I thought that that was like really a very observant way of looking at it. Because when you think about cooks and a cook's life, a lot of us love it and a lot of us just do it. And I think what we're finding out now with this shortage in employment is that a lot of people really want to do something else. But the ones who really want to cook are the ones who show up on your door with their knives sharpened and they're just ready to go. And that just makes me really optimistic about food in America and food in general. This is a lifestyle. This is for life. People are cooking for life. You meet cooks who've been cooking for 20, 30 years. That's their career. So we have to start looking at restaurants and we have to start looking at people who work in them as career-minded people and treating them as such.
1: And I imagine you do have a lot of career-minded, especially women, who ask you for advice. And so what do you say to young or maybe even not so young women of color, Black women, chefs who ask you, like, can I do this? Can I make it? What advice do you give?
5: One of my first things that I think is really important is finding your support system because we need a lot of help and support because it's a male dominated industry. Work is hard. Sometimes it's even hard to get to work. Like if you live in a neighborhood that you can afford on a cook's salary, but you want to work in a Michelin star kitchen, I doubt if you live walking distance to that kitchen. You have to think about the whole lifestyle of how you're going to achieve your goals and your dreams. So I think like really having people in your life that fully support what you're doing and that will help you to your goals. And then I also think about like being really true to yourself and understanding what you want to get out of it, because everyone doesn't have to own a restaurant. Everyone doesn't have to be a chef in a restaurant to have influence in the food culture in the United States. We all don't have to be at the stove cooking. So figure out like what you are bringing to this career and understand if you really want to be in it because cooking requires you to learn and pay your dues and be repetitive and be able to handle stress and be able to work when you're tired. But I don't know of any other thing that you can be successful at that doesn't require those same things. So I think you have to really want it. You have to love it. And you also have to really have a good support system around you.
1: I was struck in your book how much you do talk about your family and how much Jono, your partner, talks about his wife clearly recognizing on the page how important your support systems have been to both of you in building and maintaining the gray.
5: I was living in, you know, East New York, Brooklyn, working in Soho and riding the train at 1 a.m. in the morning. And I was evicted. Like, it was just so many things that went on because I wasn't making enough money. And I never told my family, but if I needed to go eat dinner or I needed to recharge, that I could do that. I didn't tell him because I didn't want to worry them. It's like when I used to come home for a visit and I would have a burn on my hand. My mother would just say, like, what are you doing with your life? Like, why are you beating yourself up like this? Physically endangering yourself. And I'm like, it's just a burn. It's fine. Or it's just a cut. It's fine. You know, Meanwhile, now as a mom, I'm like, oh, my gosh,
0: what if my children <laughs> want to do that? You know, they're two, five and seven. I have time. But still, I have a lot of empathy for your mom.
5: <laughs> Definitely. I just I just think that it's been a great experience. It's probably the only thing in my life that I've given my whole self to. And now as I'm sort of rounding this next corner as a business partner and we're expanding and my role is changing, and I'm no longer the person who is turning on the lights and turning on the ovens and straining the stocks. I'm the person who's really sort of figuring out the culture of the business and really working to maintain that. I'm so excited that my journey is and was what it was, because I feel like it could really help to inform the next generation on how they can be better in this industry and how we can build a better culture in this industry.
1: We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
6: 2025 QX 80 coming this summer
7: from football playoffs to basketball madness.
1: Since we are talking during Women's History Month, I wonder what role you think the restaurant industry, because it is a huge part of our economy, really has in ensuring that restaurant owners, chefs are doing their part to support opportunities for women, advancement for women, ultimately equal participation for women.
5: Restaurants and restaurateurs have to be more vocal about what we need. And I think we have to put that on the consumer. We have to put that on the guests. I think we have to be loud about who we are and we have to demand that same thing from our clientele. And I think that that's how we are going to be able to change the status quo of who works in restaurants and how the people in restaurants are being treated and how they can actually carve out a life for themselves. And that usually is financial, right? That usually is given by support. Like this is a financial business. This is a for-profit business. So in order for us to do the things that we do, we have to charge what we need to charge. The margins in restaurants are really, really small. So we tend to box ourselves in corners because sometimes we can't afford to get equipment fixed. So if we can't afford to get a blender, then we can't afford for our cook to take off so she can go to her kid's recital. Like if we can't afford those things. So I think really looking at the numbers and the margins of how restaurants run and filtering that money back into the business to support the staff, I think it's probably what chefs and restaurateurs can do in order to change the lifestyles of how people live in restaurants, especially women.
1: And do you think consumers are more aware now in these COVID times, at least with all of the rhetoric around supporting frontline workers, or do you think it hasn't really shifted?
5: I think in the beginning they were really concerned and very thankful. And I think now it's going back to, well, where's my food and why aren't you open and why does this cost so much? And so I think this is going to be a little bit longer than everyone expected. So we have to be way more kinder, way more generous than we thought we were initially going to have to be in order to rebuild this industry.
1: You shared earlier the statistic of how many chefs there are and only a quarter women. Is there a statistic like that? Or maybe that is the statistic that enrages you in a way to just try to do more or that gives you real optimism that there are more women than there were when you started?
5: You know, it's funny because I'm very empathetic to the lifestyle that we choose. And especially being a woman working in this field, it's hard. But I am a champion for women and I want us to be happy. I know that when I see women in kitchens that they are happy. They're truly chosen the lifestyle that they want to have. And I really wish and want to be an advocate for women not being afraid to come into this industry and ask for what they want because they can have all of it. And I think a lot of us look at it and say, well, I can never get married or I can never have children. And that's not true. You can come in and you can have a balanced life and you can do the thing that you love to do. And so I do see a lot more women, especially in the South, cooking professionally. And so I just want us to really decrease that gap that there is because we have a lot to bring to the table. Like I said, I think, you know, for a long time, when you want a good meal, you go to a woman to cook it. <laughs> and if you want to go to a restaurant, then the men are cooking. So what happened? Why aren't we doing it professionally? And I just don't think that we think that there's enough room for us so we can have the lifestyle that we want. And I really wanna be an advocate to that we can have the lifestyle that we want.
1: Well, and that you are exhibit A of that. <laughs> Mashama Bailey, thank you so much for your time today. And I can't wait until we're a little bit further through COVID, and hopefully, I can have the chance to come eat at the Gray.
5: Oh, Chelsea, this was an honor and a pleasure. If you can't
1: make it to Savannah or Austin, you can find The Gray on social media at The Gray Savannah. And for a truly great read, I highly recommend their book, Black, White, and the Gray The Story of an Unexpected Friendship and a Beloved Restaurant. In Fact is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We are produced by a mighty group of women and one amazing man Erica Goodmanson, Marit Har, Sarah Horowitz, Jessamyn Molly, and Justin Wright. With help from Lindsay Hoffman, Barry Lurie, Joyce Kubin, Julie Subrin, Mike Taylor, and Emily Young. Original music is by Justin Wright. If you like this episode of In Fact, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your family and friends to do the same. If you really want to help us out, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts.